0: Happy Easter. We were trying to figure out on Friday night, what do you say on Friday night, on Good Friday? Do you just say, Good Friday? You know, because it's not Happy Good Friday, though it is a very happy night, but it's definitely Happy Easter. It's a good day. Uh, My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is so good to celebrate this significant day together today. I'm going to read this morning our passage for our sermon from uh, the book of Hosea, chapter 3. Hosea chapter three, verse one through five says, and the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lathek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days you shall not play the whore or belong to another man so I will also be to you For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince without sacrifice or pillar without ephod or household gods afterwards the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall come to fear shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness In the latter days, this is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're not regularly at Roswell Community Church, we are in the process this year of walking through um, a catechism. Uh, A catechism is basically a a training in the, the fundamentals, the foundations of our faith. And we happen to find ourselves on this particular Sunday at question 20. And I don't know that on Easter Sunday morning, we could have a better question than question 20. Question 20 asks... Who is the Redeemer? Listen to the answer. The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty of sin, uh, for sin, himself. In the scriptures, if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, if you're not, you may learn something about this, is that God identifies himself in a variety of different ways. He finds himself expressing the reality of who he is, but more significantly the reality of what his relationship with us, his people, with the people he created in a variety of different images and particular ways of expressing himself. And one of the ways he does that is he calls himself a good king. He's a good king who rules with equity and with justice and with benevolence, providing those in his kingdom with blessing and his people with peace. Scripture also talks about God being being a good shepherd who walks us through the valley of the shadow of death, who leads us by still waters, and who brings us to pasture and, and cares for us, who protects us in the midst of our fields and along the way. Scripture also talks about God as a good father, a father who placed his image on his sons and on his daughters, his likeness upon us. And then he gave us honor and glory, it says. He's a father who's raised his children in the wisdom that would guide them in how they live, how they walk, how they're alive. And he provides for them. He nurtures them. It says that he's written their names on the palms of his hand. And he gives them an inheritance. He's a good father. But perhaps one of the most poignant imageries in the scripture that describes God himself and particularly how he relates to his people, those he created, is how he identifies himself as a husband, as a good husband to his people. Now, if you think about what that looks like, it's very clear in Isaiah chapter 54 when he says it this way. Your maker, me, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, the holy one of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you into for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off says the Lord. So God says, I'm like a husband to you, which means that he looks at our relationship together as a relationship of, of marriage. And, and in that imagery, there's some real clear things that come clearly uh, to the forefront. One is, is that marriage has intimacy in it. As has intimacy, particularly in the area of delight. And this is one of the awesome passages, Isaiah 62. This is what God said. He says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. One of the perks of being a pastor is that I get to do weddings. I get to perform ceremonies. And of course, if you don't know this, I have the best seat in the house in that moment, right? I mean, moms and dads, you're close by, but, but I get the front row seat to the reality of what that delight looks like. One particular wedding I did a few years ago with Jared and Emily Flo, who are here this morning. And I stood there with Jared as we waited for Emily to come down, down the aisle, and she appears at the end, and, and delight comes over Jared's face so much delight that tears begin to just pour down his face. And so Emily beautifully comes down the aisle and she stands before him. And I'm starting to address the people about how they're here as witnesses and not just showing up to be for a party and all that. But, But no one's watching and listening to me. They're all watching Jared and Emily. And you know why? Because Jared can't stop crying. He has such delight in the bride that just came down the aisle. He cannot keep himself from crying. And then Emily reaches up and starts wiping the tears off his cheeks, which means that everyone was crying then. (laughs) And I don't cry at weddings, like it's one of my rules, you know, I'm there to like, I got a job to do. I just, I couldn't contain myself. Delight. Scripture says that the Lord delights over us as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So marriage, the imagery of marriage that God gives us has this sense of intimacy, both of delight, but also of knowledge. Now, there's a, there's a strong reality. You can hide who you are to your friends. You can, you can pretend with your parents. You can even lie to yourself. Let's just be honest. But if you're married, you know you cannot pretend or hide who you really are to your spouse. Some of the picture that God gives us of what his marriage looks like is he says, I know you. And his invitation to us is that we would know him. That it would be a relationship of knowledge, of intimacy, and of knowledge. And because of this, marriage is also a relationship of great power which is another reason why God uses this metaphor. It's tremendously powerful. Let me use this example. If I preach a sermon and a bunch of you come up to me and go like, Matt, you killed it, bro. Like fist bump, high fives, like best day ever. But then on the way home, I call Becky and Becky's like, eh, that was okay. I mean, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was fine. It was fine. (laughs) Which by the way is the equivalent, the male equivalent of like, how do I look? You look fine. Just so you know, that's the same thing. And, uh, why is that? And so what happens is that suddenly it wasn't a very good sermon. It actually was a terrible sermon. It's not that I don't respect y'all's opinion, but, but her voice has power. And of course, if all of you come up and say, or none of you come up, or everyone comes up and goes like, well, you know, there's always next time. <laughs> um, and Becky on the way home says, Matt, I loved it. I love what I heard and saw in you. I love what happened. You know what? Best sermon ever. I don't care what y'all think. Best sermon ever. It's true, isn't it? There's power in the voice. Ladies, if, if your husband thinks you're beautiful and the whole rest of the world isn't sure they agree, you move into the world with confidence, you're beautiful. But if the whole world tells you you're beautiful and your husband doesn't think you're beautiful, well, then are you beautiful anymore? God says, my voice is that powerful. And not only is it that powerful in you as a husband to his wife, but that it's supposed to be exclusive. He uses imagery in particular because he says, you're mine, you belong to me. I belong to you. We're in covenant relationship with one another. And some of the power of it is that there's exclusivity to it. It's, it's I am to you and you are to me and you I am to you only and you are to me only. There's a uniqueness and exclusivity. This is how God shows himself. He says, I want you to understand what I'm like. I'm like a husband to a wife. I'm, I, I'm, our relationship is like a marriage and in order to understand me and for you to understand you, you're going to have to be able to understand and see this. And so what he does in the book of Hosea is he gives us front row seats to what it really looks like. And he walks his prophet, Hosea, through the process of understanding and seeing God as he really is. Hosea prophesied in the time where the, 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 the nation of Israel was prospering. Uh, it actually also in the midst of that prosperity, it completely turned from God. They had rejected what, it was, what he had called them to. He had rejected his, his covenant and basically were doing whatever they wanted to, but as a country, they were flourishing. And God calls Hosea to be a prophet to the people, to be able to call them back to himself in the midst of their rejection. But this is how his call begins. Hosea chapter one, verse two and three says, this is an Easter passage, by the way. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go. Take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer. Go, go and get yourself a wife. Well, Hosea's gotta be like, Great, I'm actually planning on that. That sounds like a good plan. I would like to have a wife. But the next words throw everything off: go get yourself a wife, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, a promiscuous wife, an adulterous wife. Now, as I said, I do weddings, but I also do premarital counseling. And, and I can just imagine in, in the process of doing premarital counseling, I have people fill out these, um, these surveys, these inventories to kind of figure out compatibility. Some of you guys have done those. Um, can you imagine if one of the questions in the inventory was like, do you plan on being adulterous an adulterous relationship during your marriage? It isn't in there, just so you know, like it's actually a legit inventory, it's not strange. But imagine, imagine if one of the responses came back and was like, maybe, or or, or "Or sometimes, or often. Well, because I love you, I would say, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think this is going to be a good marriage. I think you're heading in a trajectory here that's going to be destructive. Your relationship will not stand, it won't work. It's not going to work. But that's exactly what God says to to Hosea. He says, I want you to go and you're going to have an adulterous wife. And so Hosea goes and he finds Gomer. He probably went to Samaria, which is one of the larger cities in the Northern Kingdom. And although her reputation was sketchy, he was drawn to her. And so he woos Gomer and then he marries her. And things start off pretty well, or at least it seems uh, she's been comfortable she's come and she's been a part of the home he'd prepared in the village they live in even some of the women that are around the village have have kind of brought her in even though her past is a little bit peculiar and and the rumors are not great so she's made some friends and and lo and behold she becomes pregnant which which must signal the blessing of the lord and so though hosea is unsure about what the future will look like he's he's tangibly excited his heart is opened He's wondering if she's pregnant and there's blessing. Maybe God's changed the trajectory of what he's foretold. Maybe as he's prophesied to me what is to be for me, it's actually going to be a different journey. It's going to be a satisfied wife who is going to delight herself in her husband. Could it be, could it be that actually our marriage is going to reflect and represent what could be between Israel and God instead of what actually already is? Maybe, or so he hopes. So Hosea starts to travel and he's going across the countryside and he's preaching repentance to the people. Come back to God, he says. Come back to the Lord. And he gets back in time for the, the birth of his, his first son. And, and as he picks up his son, he's be able, he's able to, to recognize the strong cheekbones in his son and, and, and the beautiful hair that looks just like Gomer. And he's delighted. And the Lord says, Hosea, name the son Jezreel, because I want to remind you that I am going to topple the kings of Israel, that I'm going to bring them to ruin because of the violence that's been a part of them. So every time you hear his name, remember, I am doing something. That's unsettling, but he is a prophet. And so he names his son Jezreel. But after Jezreel's born, something seems to shift in Gomer's demeanor. She begins to, to pull away. She starts making more and more frequent trips to Samaria, and she finds herself coming home with, with new jewelry and, and some fabric of, of uh, scarlet and of, and of purple, uh, gifts, of course, from new friends she's been able to make there, friends that, unfortunately, he's never able to meet when he finds himself in the city with her. Almost immediately, she finds herself pregnant once again. And this time, she gives birth to a daughter. And as she gives birth to this daughter, God says, Hosea, I want you to name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. He says, because I will no longer show mercy on my people. As soon as Lo-Ruhamah is, is weaned, he finds himself, she finds herself pregnant once again. Which is, was perplexing to him because he's been traveling a great deal, and, and, and more significantly, she's removed her intimacy from him completely. But she's pregnant. Nine months later, she delivers another son. And the Lord says, Hosea, I want you to name him Lo Ami, which means not my people. And the mourning prophet, with sorrow, recognizes that that's the fitting name, because as he looks at the face of the son, there are no family resemblances. He is not from his family. He is not from his people. But almost any attempt to, to have a conversation about Gomer's behavior, about the rumors that are going around town in their community, about her temper with the kids or her disdain for him openly, well, it always just results in her jumping on the donkey and taking off for two to three days only to come back Briefly, Hosea finds himself traveling and comes back one day and and now she's gone. She's taken everything she possesses. She's cleared it all out and she's left. Hosea's mother, who's been helping with the children more and more and more, says that the word is is that she's taken up with a lover in the city and and it's an open relationship. It is now full adultery, unapologetic, blatant. And so Hosea finds himself walking about in the town, in the marketplace, always hearing the hushed whispers about him, always wondering, what does everyone know? But of course, everyone knows. And then, of course, there's the jeering and the mocking as he finds himself bringing the message of of, of the power of God against idolatry to be able to say change people of Israel. He hears men in the background saying, you can't even keep your wife at home under control or what we hear satisfied. So why would we listen to you? After a couple of years, Jose hears that a man that Gomer is living with is not able to provide for her and his heart is stirred. And so he finds himself going and buying some of the things that have been most precious to her, a piece of jewelry, some clothing, some of the fragrances that were most pleasurable to her when they were first married, some food. And he goes to this home and he knocks on the door and a a gruff, ugly man comes to the door. This man takes a step back, a defensive step back when he hears Hosea say, I am Gomer's husband. But as, as Hosea explains, the man is willing. He takes the gifts from Hosea's hand And he slams the door in his face. As Hosea finds himself walking away, he can hear Gomer shrieking with joy. The gods have provided, she yells. As he walks away, he turns and sees her running towards the temple of Baal to make a sacrifice of gratitude, maybe some raisin cakes. Hosea is heartbroken. There is no way to reach her. As he heads home, as he returns home, his thoughts are are just a foreshadowing of what the prophet prophet Jeremiah would say. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number, says the Lord. Life takes on a habitual rhythm. Hosea is a full-time prophet with stay-at-home dad, three kids, the three children that God has given him. Jose is committed to being a good father to all three of these children. The rumor mill now, because of time, has quieted down. Every once in a while, someone will say, Have you heard? It looks like it's gotten worse. The descent has continued. She's fallen further and further down. First a shrine prostitute, now just a streetwalker. It's sad, isn't it? It's very sad. And then the day comes. On one day, God finally says, Hosea, I have something to say to you. He says, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. Hosea's first thoughts are, are bewilderment. Wait, go again? I understand that you were trying to show a picture of the rebellion of Israel against you and that you wanted to use my life. And, and you know what? Because I have committed myself to you and you've called me to this, I was willing to do this. But I'm out. I have no more. You say love, not just go, but love? I have poured out my love, all that I had to give. And it's, it's yielded nothing. She has spurned it time and time again. No, you can't ask me to go. You mustn't ask me to go. You understand, Lord. If anyone understands, you understand. The Lord says, I do understand. And now you understand me. But that very moment, someone walks in and says, you won't believe what's happening. Today, Gomer is being sold. She's going to be sold as a slave in the city. And at that moment, Hosea knows what he must do. And so he grabs everything he has, all his silver and, and the leftover barley from, from his crops, and he throws it on his donkey and he heads into the city. And he finds himself pushing through the crowd at the marketplace, people wh- whispering in hushed tones about why he's there. One particular woman says, well, maybe he's here to witness justice. Good for him. Hosea pushes through the bustling crowd. Every eye on him, seemingly. And as he nears the crowd, the auctioneer brings out a wooden block. Then from, from one side, an angry man pushes a woman forward. He pushes her, and he, he pushes her up onto this block. Here, bring the block over here. He's angry, and so as, as he brings this frail, destitute woman to this block... As she steps onto the block, he pulls down her clothes and exposed with her nakedness, of course, because the bidders must see what they're going to buy. Why has this happened, Hosea wonders? Has she she failed to pay some debt? Is this her pimp who's trying to get the last dollars out of what he could because she's no longer even good as a prostitute? Hosea doesn't even recognize her anymore. As she stumbles up onto the the block, he doesn't recognize her. Her her emaciated body doesn't resemble any of the beauty that he had known early in his life. Her hair is matted and frayed, not silky as it had once been. And the eyes, which had been her most striking feature, have lost all gleam. It's as though no one's home anymore. Though her eyes aren't open anymore, as she stood up onto the, um, onto the block, her, her eyes shut, trying to maintain a glimmer of dignity as her shame is exposed in front of jeering, laughing, pointing men and women. She has nothing left. Five shekels, eight shekels. The bidding begins. And suddenly, from Hosea's mouth rings the bid: ten shekels of silver. Every head snaps. Hosea's bidding? What is he thinking? What use could he possibly have of this adulterous wife of his? Does he not understand what this is going to look like for his reputation, whatever reputation he may have to salvage? You know what? Maybe, maybe he wants to buy her so that he can kill her. He can bring justice upon her because that's certainly what she deserves after all she's done. To him, revenge to make her pay. But Hosea wasn't listening, not to their rumblings. His eyes were fixed on, on Gomer because when he bid, her eyes also opened and she find herself staring at her husband, the one she had betrayed, the one she had left. And she's confused. There's fear. There's also a little bit of hope. 12 shekels, 15 shekels. 15 shekels, a Homer and a half of barley, sold. And just like that, just like that, Hosea redeems his wife. She's now his again. Not as she was through covenant, but she's his once again. He moves towards her and he takes off his own robe and he wraps it around her, her frail, weak body. He pulls her towards himself. He looks at her and he says to her, Lomer, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In other words, I will be yours and you will be mine. I did not purchase you as a slave. I purchased you so that I could offer myself to you also. But you were mine once as a right as a husband, but now you are mine because I have redeemed you once again. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how you view God, in what ways you see him, what you think of him. But do you know what he's like? God's like a husband a good faithful cherishing perfect husband who loves his wife and whose people have rejected him cheated on him with other gods of money and comfort of power and pleasure seeking to find their way without him he's a good husband he's not just a good husband he's he's a redeeming husband who at infinite cost to himself, he's a husband who at infinite cost to himself, his reputation, everything he had at infinite cost to himself, redeemed her, it brought her back and redeemed us. That's the story of Easter. For a while, Romans 5 says, for while we were still weak... While we were standing right here at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Some of the best words in the Bible. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the one who was raised from the dead. This is the Redeemer. God is like that. Do, do you know him? Do you know him as such? Or, or do you have some character picture of either a stoic God who's completely indifferent or, or some kind of a tyrant who's just waiting for you to blow it? Just waiting. God is a redeeming husband, and, and not just with silver and, 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 and barley, but Peter says in 1 Peter, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, the ways in which we have all turned aside and gone our own way. You were, you were ransomed from this futile way, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You see, Christ didn't just come and stand in front of us at the auction block and say, I'll buy him back. What he had to do is actually come and step onto the block himself. He had to come and take the full responsibility of what every single person in this room, every single person in the world, all the ways in which we've gone our own way, he had to come and stand here and experience all of that shame, all of that guilt, as we saw on Friday, all of the wrath of God upon him. This is the cross, Christ coming and taking our place and setting us free. That's why Easter is such good news, because Easter morning is when Christ confirmed that it is indeed finished, that what was accomplished for you on that block 2,000 years ago, when he walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning, AD 33-ish, when that happened, he put to death all that would stand above, against you, all, all, that, all that would hold you away from God, all that would pull you away. And so, so there's two types of people here this morning who are saying, I'm not sure about this. Uh, one is someone who says, you know what? Honestly, I just don't know that I need a redeemer. Like, I don't know that I need redemption. I, I mean, let's just, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of abiding by the golden rule. I'm doing the best I can. I'm, I'm, not try, I'm trying to not hurt anybody else, and I don't think I am. And I really kind of feel like God's a lot like me. He's kind of a live and let live kind of God. Everything's going to be okay. But that's, that's not the God of the Bible. Romans 7 said that we're sold as slaves into sin. The picture in scripture about how, how turned in on ourselves and turned away from God we are is not just something that, that God winks at that's like, ah, no big deal, don't worry about it. It's so severe that he sent himself, his own son, to die. That's the price at infinite cost to himself. Now, so some of you are feeling like, okay, it's not a big deal. Maybe I don't need a redeemer. And then some of you are feeling like I'm beyond redemption. I, either the sins of your past or the failures of your present are actually keeping you from, from being able to move towards God with confidence and surety, to be able to say, can he really receive me? Can he receive me? Really? And if the story of Hosea shows us anything, if it points towards anything, is that God's the God of the prostitute. He's the God who reaches in, who comes into the middle of the marketplace and who takes our place, pulls us off, clothes us, and takes us home. That's who our Redeemer is. He has purchased us again. He had us outright by having created us, and now he has bought us again through his blood, and that's the great news of Easter weekend. And it's impossible to separate the great news of Good Friday, that all of our sins have been nailed to the cross, and the great news of Sunday morning, which says, and that is now done, that as he rose, you rise. That as he rose, you rise to newness of life, Roman says. And so what's true about you today, if you belong to Jesus Christ, is that new life has permeated your body. You you can look back on the reality that you were once here, and that is no longer the case. He has taken you home. And as we say often here, it's worse than you think. But he knows. So one of the invitations of Easter is come and meet the Redeemer. If you don't know him, if you have not met him, if you have not trusted him, if you're still leaning on yourself, come home. You've been running, you have other lovers, but they will not satisfy. Come home. Christ has made it possible. God in Christ Jesus has said, you may now come home. And God says in Hosea chapter 2, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And then in verse 23, he says, I will have mercy on lo ruhama on no mercy. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to lo ami, to not my people, you are my people. And we shall say, you are my God. That is our Redeemer. That is your Redeemer if you will receive him today. Let's pray. Father, At infinite cost to yourself, you poured out your wrath on your son. At infinite cost to yourself, you came after us when we had been nothing but unfaithful, nothing but idolatrous, when all the inclinations of our hearts were evil all the time. There was none of us who did right, not even one. There was no one who seeks God. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so today we celebrate that, that you received all of the wrath, that you bore it in your body, that you died all the way for us as we should have died, and then you rose again. That death no longer has a sting. That We are alive in Christ Jesus today as the truest thing about us, new life coursing through our bodies May we live that way, Father, as we enter this season of Easter when we find ourselves living in newness of life and everything we do with everything we have to the praise of your glory, that your name may be exalted and that you may be praised above all things. We pray this because of your Son, our great Redeemer, the one you rose from the dead, Christ our Savior. Amen.